to our Blue Margin Expert Insights series. This series was established for private equity partners and mid-market executives who are looking to use data intelligence to improve the accountability around the value creation plan throughout their organizations and thereby increase the value of their companies. Today, we're talking with Charles Coonrat, also known as Chuck. He's a consultant, CEO, and five-time best-selling author including The Game of Work, one of our favorite books here at Blue Margin, and one that's foundational to our philosophy on helping companies to use their data more effectively. The Game of Work is also the name of Chuck's company, founded in 1973. His team of management consultants has worked with Fortune 500 companies, including Boeing, the U.S. Air Force, Coca-Cola, Nordstrom's, Coors, Wendy's, Sherwin-Williams, Cisco, you name it. Chuck is a founding member of the School of Entrepreneurship at Brigham Young University and at the Marriott School of Management. Chuck was labeled by Forbes magazine as the grandfather of gamification in 2013. He's a real expert in this. Chuck, thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's an honor. It really is. And I appreciate the work that Blue Margin is doing out there to maintain the uh, improvement in how we use data and how we apply it. In the, in the human side. So thank you thank for you. having me. I appreciate that very much. So I'm interested in your career path, just for some context for our audience. It would be great to know how you came to this point or this long career of, of looking at gamification numbers, um, data, and so on for helping companies to succeed. The, uh, it's hard to know where that started. I've always been a big fan. Um, kind of a you know, I'm an 18 handicap golfer. I tried to walk on at Michigan State and did not make the team. But I've always had this sense of uh, interest in, in being a fan, watching my my Spartans, which is pretty sad this year, and my Green Bay Packers, which is not much better. So, uh, but that's where we got started. My my degree, people say, what's your background degree? My degree is in supermarket operations. Um food marketing management at Michigan State. But when I got out of there, I was influenced heavily by two people. One, Paul J. Meyer, who started a company called Success Motivation Institute back in the 60s and was one of my great mentors. And uh, Paul's concept was that goal setting is the, is the key, that that's what drives us. And as we look towards achieving goals, we have to have something along the way in terms of a measurement system or a means of, of progress of, of marking off how well we're doing on the path. And that's where I think the scorekeeping process came in. So for a while, we were <clears throat> pro, strong proponents of Meyer and uh, used his programs until we started to write our own. Uh, <clears throat> the Probably the best indication that epiphany, if you will, for me, is a combination of things that come together in the following way. I was calling on a redneck, and, you know, he was mid-50s, mid-career, not happy about either, and and uh, he was giving me the Kids Today lecture. Kids can't work, kids don't care. You know, this was back in 1977 or something like that when we were going from different generations. We say that today. We all have had that lecture in our lifetime. That's not the problem. The problem is the day you gave that lecture because then you just become your father. 
So like the Geico commercial, you know, you've fallen into being your parents. Um, and he took me over to a second story window where we were looking down on some factory workers building houses. And he said, what are you and your magic box going to do about that? And what that was, was eight young men <clears throat> siding a house. And to describe their work pace, you'd have to use words like arthritic snails and wet cement. I mean, it was mined. It was like pick up a nail, pick up a hammer. And he said, what are you going to do about that? Well, I wasn't a very experienced salesman at the time. And so I just kind of froze, knew that I didn't have a comeback immediately. And then I was blessed richly by the lunch bell. When the lunch bell rang, those eight hammers got just flew out of their hands like they were electrified. These eight guys took off down a factory floor, half of them taking their shirts off like they'd been poked with a cattle prod till they found a basketball hoop. And then I saw these eight fellows magically transform from mimes and arthritic snails into energized. Everybody knew what they were doing. No strat plan, no management oversight, none of the stuff that, you know, we read about in the books. And everybody knew the score. And that went on for exactly 42 minutes. And at 12.42, they picked up their Cokes and their sack lunches and started walking back to the job eating the sandwich. Where one o'clock, they were back on the clock, arthritic snails in wet cement. And I turned to Earl, I remember clearly, I turned to him and I said, you know, it's not a raw material problem. In other words, there's nothing wrong with those kids. And that dichotomy of work and recreation when they weren't being paid started off with the tongue twister of why is it that people pay for the privilege, skiing, golf, hunting, tennis, of working harder than they work when they're paid. And so we, to call what we did research would be an offense to research. <laughs> we simply... We simply said, what happened under the basketball hoop? What did or did not happen making the house? And so we morphed, if I can jump around a little bit, we morphed into these five principles of the motivation of recreation. What we saw under the basketball hoop was the goals were clearly defined. You know, nobody's up there shaking the backboard. Um, everybody knew the rules. The uh, scorekeeping was pretty clear, and it was consistent, and it was dynamic, meaning it was measured with the process. People knew the score while the game was in progress, so they could change their behavior to win before the game ran out. So so we got goals, got scorekeeping. Um, then we saw that even though there was not an official coach under the basketball hoop, they were coaching each other. You know, Charlie, I need you over there. Jim, get this one. Um, and then they were doing it. And this is maybe the biggest element that is interesting in gamification today is that they had choice. You know, by some mystical, magical <laughs> agreement, they, all eight guys were playing the game. They knew what they were doing and went from there. So those five principles as we started to look at companies, we said, well, where is that missing? And that became the, 
the cornerstone of the game works. So that was a long answer to a great question. But. That's fantastic. I really love that. You know, we're, we're not exaggerating at Blue Margin when we say that the game of work was foundational to how we help companies. Um, and specifically your principle around people need to know how to win and they need to know if they're winning. And certainly in that basketball scenario, if they didn't have a score, it would have been, you know, not nearly as compelling. Uh, we'll dig into the details as we go in, but at the highest level, why is scorekeeping that one element you mentioned so important for success in business? Okay. Well, I hope this doesn't sound like a cheap plug, uh, but um, in my book, Scorekeeping for Success, we made the statement that the primary reason for scorekeeping is for a coach and a player, manager, worker, picture term, but for a coach and a player to decide when, what kind, and how much feedback is appropriate. So the scorecard, as one of our presidents and clients said one time, she said, well, the scorecard's just a reason to have a conversation. And, you know, what brilliance, because even if you've got a, a coach who's not focused, who's maybe of my generation and ilk, you know, where my grandpa went through the depression and you're damn lucky to have a job, son, so shut up and do what they ask. You know, that, that boomer mindset. We're at, we're saying that the more often you give the feedback, the better the performances, both of uh, in quantity and in quality. And do you so, mean that? Do you mean so, the feedback that the scoreboard gives you itself, or the feedback from the coach uh, looking at the scoreboard alongside the player? And the answer to that is yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what you've touched on, John, if I can expand, is the importance of the consistency. So, if I'm, you know, if I'm looking at the scorecard. Um, mean days between sales. How frequently do I get a deal? How many widgets have we produced? Uh, and I'm looking at the scorecard as a player on a daily basis saying, boy, today was better than average, not as good as average. And I'm drawing my feedback from the scorecard or the dashboard. Okay? Then when my coach sits down with me, he or she needs to be consistent with the feedback that I've been working on. So if I think that I've got a hitting streak of, of 10 days in a row getting done the things that I need to get done, and somebody comes in and makes a huge deal out of one shortfall or starts picking the fly specks out of the pepper, as the cliche goes, I'm devastated. So the importance of measurement is that it gives – it gives a basis for empirical feedback and not just the whims or mood of the manager and the most significant negative data point. Okay. While we're on those five principles of the motivation of recreation, you talk about choice. Um, if someone might look at dashboards and scorecards as something that really regiments what someone needs to do, just hit these numbers and you've got it. Um, I'm guessing that you see it opposite to that, that it's an opportunity for choice, but I'm curious if I'm right on that. And if so, how you think about choice in that context? Here's the thing that we've, I think that we've got our hands around. People 
who work in organizations, uh, privately held, corporate, you know, PE control. People in the team seem to be acceptable to the leader, coaches, owners' right to set the goals. So, so as we define choice, it's not about setting the goals, but they will kill over trying to screw around with their methods. Okay, so yeah, I would not. I would, you know, Steve Kerr coaching Seth Curry would be an idiot to try to change his shot. Steph will accept from Coach Kerr that we need to have 30 from you tonight or we need to have 40, okay? But nobody in their right mind is going to yell at Steph to step back another foot from the three-point line because it works better for you. So what we're saying is that when you give people choice of their methods, you solve the biggest problem in corporate improvement, which is buy-in. So one of the things we know about about feedback is that um, if you increase the frequency of the feedback, this is really interesting, you decrease the size of the problem. So if I'm looking at overtime on a monthly basis and I start to look at it on a daily basis, I've reduced the size of the problem. And when I reduce the size of the problem, I create a greater emotional willingness to solve it. Yeah. Does that feedback need to be at what level? To the person who's, who is actually logging the overtime, to the manager who's responsible for it, to the executive who cares about how it hits the bottom line, all three? Well, I think primarily it's the, it's the ownership. So it's primarily it's probably that manager who owns that budget. Now, he or she is going to communicate upward to he or she that they report to. And then really, the person who has the greatest chance to fix the overtime is the person who's working. So, um, so, but if I can go to a team and I can say, I mean, we've done a lot of work in the, in the beverage business on both of the major sides. So, we have to be careful here. But if we go in and look at change over time in a manufacturing situation and we're summing it up in the traditional once a month after the game's over financial thing and then yelling and screaming about it too often the case, we don't have a chance. I mean, not a dying duck in a hailstorm is going to get improvement in that. Doesn't it fix the next month when you look at the previous and say, ah, yell and scream, and then the next month they get it right? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my assessment of management is if, if your May excuses can overcome your April performance, you get a job in June. Uh, <laughs> you, may, you may not be any better. But, you know, there's just too many people that confuse a good, ex- you know, good excuses and bad performance for good performance. It's, just, it's, it's crazy. Um, so uh, <clears throat> if you break it down back into the daily or the weekly, uh, as, I've, as we've done on several occasions, what you get from the player 
which is the most important person on the deal here, what you get from the player is, well, we can fix that. You know, when we looked at it monthly, too big, too tough, too late. Gets lost in the noise, doesn't touch the nerve. Right. Uh, question for you. So thinking about impact generally, that your methodology, the game of work, the gamification of work, scorekeeping and feedback has, uh, can you just give us some sense of that, that you've seen it? In, in the real world, uh, the impacts it's had in terms of growth, profitability, culture, does it span those? Where do you see the greatest impact? And any thoughts there? And we were getting results in a week or two weeks or three weeks after implementation because the human individual, we're designed to win. We just need to have a really clear path to get there and and a really sized amount of improvement that I know that I'm getting better. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but I uh, no. I think it's easy to, to uh, speak to the business intelligence, which I have never really understood that phrase as being very helpful, but data insights, data intelligence, uh, to think of that as purely technical, just get the numbers in front of people. But really, it's an excuse to have a conversation, as you said. And it's a way to give a person who has an innate fundamental instinct to win a path to win so in your view if we if we know how to win we're going to do it because that's how we're driven every person top to bottom yeah And, and if we don't see here's the real danger in this is is i'm going to call it the nature of man and mankind but if i if i can't figure out how to win my job my domino thinking says there must be no way to win. Sure. So if I, don't, if I don't have the thing I can latch onto, then I have to assume the absence of it. So there's no way to win. Now, think about what happens in your head when there's no way to win. I mean, do you play golf? I was just thinking this sounds like golf to me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's no way to win. No, I mean, every but every one of us has been in that foursome yeah. Typically at an association or even a client deal, and you got three people you've never played with before. The first guy stands up and hits it out of bounds. The second one hits it in the water, and the third one says, should I hit it again or put it back on the tee? You quickly, you quickly conclude there is no way to win. This is going to be four and a half hours of non-achievement if I've ever seen it in my life. And the only reasonable thing to do is to figure out where the beer cart is. Right. Okay. But in work, if there's no way to win, I'm going to quit. Now I either quit and stay or I quit and leave. Now, if I quit and leave, we get a vacancy, but we also get a chance to start over and make a better choice next time. Yeah. If they quit and stay, this the great resignation that we're hearing about or the great shutdown or whatever, they choose to stay. Wow, because now we've got a virus which can affect other healthy tissue around it. In, in your, uh, as you answer this about accountability, when I think of accountability, I think of the power of team sports. And certainly you see great performance in solo sports, but there's something magic that happens when a team is accountable to each other. Football right now, the season, 
quarterback accountable to the tight end, front line accountable to everyone else, and so on. Um, in terms of that sense of accountability, does that play a role in the game of work? I guess it's the coaching piece, but but also to the the larger organization and cultural health. Do you see accountability accountability playing a role? I think that great coaches both in business and in, in sport. I think that the great coaches are able to, to, to galvanize a group of people to a common goal, and then they start to hold each other accountable. Yeah. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, this has been a, a pleasure. I, I think I first read your book 10 years ago, and it was, it was largely the genesis of what we built here in, at Blue Margin. Um, for leaders that want to get in touch with you directly, what's the best way? Um, you can go to gamework.com. We're on the web. Uh, you can, uh, my personal email is cac at gameofwork.com. And uh, love, to, love to chat about your circumstances. Thank you, Chuck. Look forward to talking again soon, I hope. You got it. Thanks, John. Let's do it again. All right.